You're listening to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. Support for this project is provided by listeners like you. Visit my website at p3photographers.net for ideas on how you too can become a supporter of the project. Welcome to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols, the podcast where we celebrate early women artisan photographers. I'm your host, Lee McIntyre. In today's episode, we're going to meet the marvelous Mrs. Mater Smith, a photographer from Chanute, Kansas. For more information about any of the women discussed in today's episode, visit my website at p3photographers.net. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. I hope this finds you all doing well and staying healthy in these crazy times we're living with right now. In today's episode, I want to take you back over 100 years to introduce you to a woman named Mary Elizabeth Mater Smith. She's an astute businesswoman who was able to overcome several setbacks in order to support her family of five children in the late 19th and early 20th century. Mary Elizabeth Starkey was born on December 31st, 1857 in a place called Looking Glass, Illinois. In 1874, just a week before her 17th birthday, she marries a man named A.G. Mater. Now, A.G. Mater is a grocery drummer. And if you're like me, you may never have heard that term before, but a grocery drummer is just a grocery traveling salesman. Drummer, as it turns out, in the 19th century was a common way to refer to a traveling salesman. The Maters are living in Chanute, Kansas, raising their children, who by 1885 includes three children with a fourth on the way. Sadly, though, in January of 1885, A.G. Mater is stricken with what is described in the newspapers as either a congestive lung problem or a congestive brain problem. Whatever it is, it's serious, and A.G. Mater dies at the end of January 1885. Less than two weeks later, his son, A.G. Jr., is born. So Mary Mater is left in early 1885 as a young widow with four children, including a baby who was born after her husband died. She's got to feed this family, and she is less than 30 years old herself. Unfortunately, A.G. Mater actually had some insurance. And it's not clear if the insurance was just for life insurance or whether it was some sort of accidental uh, policy, like accidental injury policy, because the newspapers in his obituary talk about the fact that in late 1884, A.G. Mater actually suffered an accident and fractured his arm and had been unable to work. So really in January of 1885, he was just getting back to work when he was stricken down with that illness. The newspaper accounts don't say why the insurance company insisted on exhuming his body before they would pay out any money on the insurance policies, but they actually exhumed the body in March of 1885. By April, it's all settled, and they agreed to pay out on the policies at least a total of $7,000. Now, I looked it up, and $7,000 in 1885 would have the buying power of about $185,000 in 2020. So that's a lot of money. But remember, Mrs. Mater is a very young widow with four children's support, and that's not going to be really enough money to keep her going for the rest of her life. 
So she invests some buying some land and building a house big enough to take in some borders. That becomes very successful, and in the late 1880s and early 1890s, they're noticed in the paper that she and her children are going back and forth between Chanute, Kansas, where they live, and Pueblo or other parts of Colorado where her relatives live, including Mrs. Mater's mother. What I find intriguing is that it's not that she goes there in, in the summer when Kansas is like beastly hot, and it's not like Kansas isn't that cold in winter, but the Mater family, apparently, Mrs. Mater and her children, apparently winter often in Pueblo, Colorado. So maybe they just really like the mountains. In any case, by 1892, Mrs. Mater has brought her entire family back to Chanute, Kansas, where she buys a photography studio and then renames it the Mater Art Studio. Now, up to this point, there's been no mention of anyone in Mrs. Mater's family of having been a photographer, either her brother, who also lives in Chanute, or anyone who lives in Colorado. But it's intriguing that in Pueblo, Colorado, in the early 1890s, there is a woman named Julia Bottomley. And as I'll mention in a moment, it's intriguing to speculate that there might be some sort of connection or inspiration coming from Julia Bottomley and her career that helps inspire some of what happens with Mrs. Mater. All right, so in 1892, Mrs. Mater has bought that studio and renamed it the Mater Art Studio. But then in June of 1893, after taking out some splashy ads in earlier 1893 for her studio, she actually announces that a man named Greg is going to come in and start taking over that space with his studio. He takes out a lot of ads saying that he's going to do just that. But then there's a big editorial against him in July of 1893 that really lambastes him for lying about doing the photography himself and saying that he's actually sending it out to be printed in another town and this is a horrible way to do business. And so you can only speculate that this was going to be very negative publicity for his business. But he does keep limping along there in Chanute with his studio in Mrs. Mater's building until November of 1893, when there's a huge fire in town, and actually that building, and along with several others there in town, all burned to the ground. Now, Mrs. Mater is willing to help Greg, and actually gives him some support for setting up again, but not in Chanute, because she reopens the Mater Art Studio in early 1894 herself, and Greg doesn't really come back to town until a little bit later. But I'm getting ahead of myself because, as I said at the beginning, this woman's name is Mrs. Mater Smith. And so you're probably wondering, well, where did the Mater Smith come from? Well, in fact, in December of 1893, uh, Mrs. Mater marries a man named W.H. Smith. But she doesn't just change her name to Smith. She actually uses the hyphenated Mater Smith. And when she reopens the art studio, she reopens it as the Mater Art Studio. But now she's Mrs. M.E. Mater Smith, again with the hyphen, running the studio. So it's intriguing to me that like Mrs. Reland, if you think back to her in an earlier podcast episode, the, the idea of the brand, the importance of the name is really key here. So the Mater Art Studio had built up a small reputation before she gets married to W.H. Smith. So she maintains that brand even as she changes her name to the hyphen. I have to say that Mrs. Mater Smith does have this intriguing relationship with this photographer named Greg because she helps him, as I said, set up after he's burnt out in 1893. She runs the studio herself in 1894. But then 
apparently she is feeling comfortable enough to rent out the studio again and help Greg get established on his feet again after the big fire. And that goes along for a couple of years where she is getting income from her rental properties with the boarders. She's getting income from renting her studio out. But then she's not actually actively working at any job herself until W.H. Smith's business starts to falter. And when I saw falter, I mean fail, because he has problems with creditors. There's notices in the newspaper that creditors are going to have to apply to get their money if they want it, but they'll have to come after him if they want it. Um, Clearly, he's having a lot of money problems. So it's maybe not so surprising that in parallel with those notices are notices about Mrs. Mater Smith actually going back into the photography business. She's taking the studio back, she's running it herself, and she's making a big go of it. Again, remember, she had four uh, children from her first marriage, and by this time, she and W.H. have actually had another daughter, having five children to support at home, and W.H. Smith's business is really not doing well at all. It goes completely under. So Mrs. Major Smith comes back to photography and then runs that gallery until 1904, when she announces that the Major Art Studio will be closing. But up until then, she's taking out splashy ads, she's clearly making a big go of it, and a good business of it. And when that photographer, Greg, that I mentioned, she had this sort of odd relationship with, when he finally does close for good later, like in the late 1890s, she actually takes his negatives. And so she takes ads in the papers right up until she closes in 1904, saying that if anyone wants reprints from the Greg studio, they should just come see her. All right, so in 1904... Mrs. Major Smith, now she's closing the Major Art Studio, getting out of the photography business, and seemingly retiring for good. Except, W.H. Smith has gone into another business. And, again, it doesn't do so well. So, by around 1906, Mrs. Major Smith announces that she is back in business, except it's a different business. Because now, instead of photography, she's actually gone into millinery, you know, making hats. In the late 1900s, up until the early 19-teens, Mrs. Mater Smith's millinery business is now the hot business in town. She's taking out big, splashy ads about how she's got the best trimmers hired and all kinds of the latest things. She's going to Chicago. She's going to Kensington City to see all the latest fashions. So in 1908, for example, she takes out a big ad that her millinery shop now has the shapes available for the merry widow hats and the college widow hats. Right, I just want to pause here because I was like, what? Okay, merry widow hats. So that I figured was related to the merry widow operetta. I mean, I know the merry widow waltz and I kind of know about the operetta, but and I know that there's usually a big hat involved with lots of feathers and things like that. But the college widow hats were something new for me. And then it was just a surprise to see these big ads for the Merry Widow hats. And that was like the big deal in 1908. So I did a little digging and it turns out that the Merry Widow hats were actually really kind of controversial. I mean, they caused riots almost in the way that they got banned in certain churches and places. And there were all these things in the paper about all the benefits of the Merry Widow hat or the problems that you'd have if you were wearing one. There was one great story that a woman got stuck on a train, essentially, because she didn't have the hat on when she boarded the train. But when she went to leave the train, the hat was so wide, they couldn't figure out how to get her off the train because her hat was wider than the hallway. Someone finally suggested that she takes the hat off. 
And she does that and is able to exit the train. But then there's a church that bans the hats from being worn in church because they block the view of the minister if the people in the front pews are wearing Mary Widow hats because they're so big. Um, now, some churches banned them. I mean, the one church banned them, but said that men could smoke in the service, but women could not wear the Mary Widow hats because it was too disruptive. But then there was another church story that said that because there were these women wearing Mary Widow hats in the front pews, well, in that church, that actually saved there from being a stampede and panic when a fire broke out on the altar and the altar boys and the priests actually had to figure out how to quickly put out that fire. But the account of it in the newspaper said later that, see, nobody behind the women in the front pews, the women wearing those Mary Widow hats, well, nobody in the back could actually see there was a fire. So there was no panic, no stampede, lives were saved. So see, a Mary Widow hat could be a really good thing or not so good thing. So that's the Mary Widow hat. Now, the, the college Widow hat, that's sort of an odd thing I'd never heard of um, either. And so I looked it up. And so in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a college widow is defined as a young woman in a college town who dates students of successive college classes. But I got to think that's kind of a sort of negative connotation to that. So it's odd to see that there's a hat associated with that. Um, I found in the Library of Congress archive a drawing of a woman in a, looks like a small-scale Mary Widow hat, uh, not quite as huge, but with the same kind of feathers on it. And that is described as a college widow. So she's in this hat, and then she's surrounded by all of the college pennants from all of the men that she's dated. Again, there's no context for that in the Library of Congress archive, but I have a feeling it's not a very positive connotation. But it is interesting to see how things were being advertised for women's hats circa 1908. All right, well, getting back to Mrs. Mater Smith, though. Mrs. Mater Smith is a very successful milliner, um, and she runs that millinery studio in Chanute, Kansas, right up until 1911, when she takes an ad in the paper saying that she's closing because of illness. What's happening is that her husband, I think, W.H. Smith, has become ill, and so she's devoting a little more time to nursing him. Now, what's interesting is her older children from her first marriage are by this point all grown, and most of them have uh, gotten married uh, at this point or are about to get married. I think one of them gets married in 1911, 1912. But some of her older children actually, for a time at least, did actually work in her businesses. So when she had her her art studio, her son, George, and her daughter, Gertrude, also known as Amy, uh, actually worked in the photography studios as photographers. One of her other daughters, Ada, in 1910, is in the directory as working with her mother at the millinery shop there in Chanute, Kansas. So kind of fun to see her children actually you know, growing to adulthood, but then also joining her in some of her businesses. Her youngest daughter, Susan Jesse Smith, who's normally called Jesse, she's the daughter of W.H. and Mary Mater Smith, the daughter of that second marriage. So Jesse is still in high school uh, in the early 19 teens, but she has a very promising elocution, theatrical, musical career. And after maybe W.H. Smith recovers a bit, they're able to send the daughter Jesse to some special training in Kansas City. In 1914, actually, Mrs. Matersmith and her daughter Jessie are living in Kansas City for a few months while Jessie was getting the specialized training, and W.H. is living in a boarding house while his wife and daughter are away. 
Sadly, W.H. Smith collapses on the porch of the boarding house where he's staying, and he's brought inside, but he's either had a heart attack or some sort of stroke or some sort of seizure. But in any case, he doesn't recover consciousness, and he dies that afternoon. His wife and his daughter are unable to get back before he dies, so they come back uh, in time for the funeral. So Mrs. Major Smith is left a widow yet again. But at this point, she's actually freer to start following Jesse Smith's career. And Jesse Smith moves around quite a bit. Uh, she is in um, Manhattan, New York City at one point, uh, working as an editor, but maybe also pursuing her theatrical and vocal careers, because then she's also back in Kansas City at around that same time, taking a job teaching music in Kansas City. I said Mrs. Major Smith follows her daughter and what's interesting is that Mrs. Major Smith at one point actually reopens a millinery shop, but this time in Kansas City. Jessie gets married and is sometimes known by her first married name, Schwenk, Jessie Smith Schwenk, who is the song described as the songbird um, in some of the newspaper articles that advertise her recitals. But by 1940, she and her mother are back living in Manhattan, New York City, where Jesse is working for a newspaper as an editor. At that point in 1940, Mrs. Major Smith is no longer listening in occupation, just living with her daughter. In 1945, Mrs. Major Smith passes away and is brought back to Chanute, where she's buried. What was really striking for me about the marvelous Mrs. Major Smith, as I call her, is that she was just so resilient, so willing to roll up her sleeves and figure out a way to support her family. So when her husband's, her second husband's business uh, falls apart twice, she's able to figure out how to go back into business and make some money to support the family. Obviously, when she's first left a widow, she really rolls up her sleeves and figures out what to do with the payout that she gets so she can continue to get income to support her family before she decides to open that studio. And as I mentioned, I'm really intrigued by the similarities between her story going from photography to millinery and this woman who was a photographer in Pueblo, Colorado, where I think it's reasonable to think that Mrs. Major Smith would have run across Julia Bottomley, the photographer in Pueblo, because Julia Bottomley, who I previously talked about on the podcast, she actually did go from photography to millinery as well. So really kind of intriguing to see some of the connections and parallels between a lot of these women. But Mrs. Major Smith, her career is one of the ups and downs, but showing just an astute ability to run a business and make money and be successful and reinvent herself in a way that we might expect in the 21st century to be this kind of astute entrepreneur, but we might not have expected to discover in the late 19th and early 20th century. So that's why I hope you join me in celebrating the career and life of Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Smith. As always, I'll be putting information on the website uh, about some of Mrs. Major Smith's ads and career, um, as well as a beautiful picture that was produced by Mrs. Major Smith in the Mater Art Studio. Chris and I were particularly excited 
to find this uh, for sale at one point because it's very rare to find any kind of photos produced by the Mater Art Studio. So I'll share that all on the website, which is, as always, p3photographers.net. That's letter P, number three, photographers.net. Remember, you can always drop me an email at podcast at p3photographers.net. And don't forget to check out Photographs, Pistols, and Paracels on Facebook at facebook.com slash p3photographers. I try to post any updates about the project, but also any updates about other interesting women photographers that I see profiled elsewhere on the internet. I post them on the Facebook page, so I hope you'll check it out. So that's it for today. Thanks, as always, for checking out the episode here on Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. Again, I hope you're all staying well and staying safe in these crazy times. Until next time, I'm Lee McIntyre, and this is Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols.